Megan and I got to go hiking this morning. Uh, we went to Snake Mountain. Uh, it was a fun hike, uh, but it's muddy. That, you know, it's still mud season in Vermont. I know it sometimes feels like summer after a long winter, but it's still mud season. And that means Coulter, by the end of this hike, was filthy. What's funny is that Coulter does not notice uh, that he looks and smells like crap, or he simply doesn't care. But Megan and I do. Right? We care that he looks like that, and we care that he smells like that because we want to be near him. But that's hard to do. It's hard to get close to our dirty, smelly dog right? when he's covered in mud. So when we got home today, the first order of business was to bring Coulter upstairs and to give him a bath. He hates this so much. I sometimes have to carry him. So before we even get into the shower, like I'm covered in mud, and I need to get a shower too. Tail between the legs. He's crammed in the shower. I bathe him. It's a messy ordeal. By the time it's done, Coulter is, he's spick and span, right? He's clean and he's dry. But I'm wet mess, right? I'm muddy by the end of it. In this passage, we meet a God who takes away our filth, right? And in this passage, we also see that his love demands a response. Today's sermon has two points. Jesus takes away our filth, and his love demands a response. Jesus takes away our filth, and his love demands a response. Well, first of all, Jesus takes away our filth. Our passage begins on a Thursday night, right? It's the feast of Passover, and it's dinner time. People are reclining at table, but nobody's feet have been washed yet, and that's a problem, and here's why. Right? In first century Palestine, people didn't have nicely paved sidewalks and underground sewage like you and I have today. Instead of cars, they had horses. Right? Cars emit a lot of CO2, but horses emit poop. <laughs> there was garbage in the streets, There was human feces in the streets, and there was horse poop, cow poop, goat poop, all of it in the streets. But that's not all. Right back in the day, your footwear options were pretty much limited to chacos and tivas. (laughs) And all of this adds up to a pretty dirty equation, right? Slop plus sewage plus sandals equals squish. Now it's dinner time. And those dirty feet are inching dangerously close to yours and my dinner plate. We're reclining at table after all. And you can see now why we have an issue. Our feet are filthy, but nobody wants to clean them. None of the disciples are stepping up, or should I say, getting low. And frankly, who can blame them? Right? This is a crappy job. It's kind of like the worst job ever. Which is typically why a servant of the house would do it, but never the master. But there are no servants present at dinner tonight, and none of the disciples are willing to wash. Now we know from Luke's telling of this same story, uh, it's in chapter 21 or 22 of Luke, that a fight broke out amongst the disciples around dinner time. Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 24, that the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest 
and who was the least. No doubt they were arguing over this very issue. Heck no, I'm not going to touch your feet. I'm not your servant. I'm not your slave. You wash my feet. You've got a bunch of dirty feet, and you've got a bunch of disciples unwilling to humble themselves. Nobody is willing to wash them. Nobody, that is, except for Jesus. This brings us to the climax of our passage. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5 with me. Now Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus washes away the disciples' filth. What he does is absolutely astounding. Nobody fainted when this passage was read. And nobody gasped out loud. Which is to say, you and I don't truly understand just how shocking this passage is. What if I told you that yesterday evening... President Barack Obama had dinner with the leader of the Taliban, Mr. Mullah Amar. What if I told you that they ate dinner in the Red Room of the White House? And what if I told you that before dinner was served, President Obama stripped down to his boxers, got on his hands and knees, and washed Mr. Amar's feet? What would you think of your president? And what would you say? The folks at Fox News would be outraged. They'd say that President Obama is a traitor and he's a friend of the Taliban. Right? The folks at MSNBC would be just as outraged, but instead of shouting, they'd probably spin. Right? It only looked like Obama watched, um, uh, watched Omar's feet. Or, you know, Mr. Omar's feet really aren't that bad. In John 13, we have someone much greater than President Obama washing stinking and dirty feet. In John 13, we have God himself, the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, adopting the garb of a slave and washing dirt and crap and grime from the feet of his creatures. His enemies hated him for it. This man is a friend of sinners. And his followers were embarrassed by him and proud. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you wash my feet? No, you shall never wash my feet. How low Jesus is willing to go for you and for me is not just shocking, it's embarrassing. Peter is embarrassed. Public displays of affection, also known as PDA, make us feel uncomfortable. And there is a lot of PDA in John 13. 
You know, we get uncomfortable when we see a couple make out on a park bench by a town hall. But here Jesus is seen taking off his clothes and washing people's feet. Right? It's embarrassing. Not only does PDA make us uncomfortable, really nice, over-the-top, and expensive gifts do too. My favorite example of this comes from an Office episode, season two. There's a Christmas party at Dunder Mifflin, and everybody has a secret Santa, right? And the rules are there's a $20 limit. You can't spend more than $20. The typical kind of gifts are given. Jim gets Pam a teapot filled with like hot sauce and all this like interesting stuff in it. Somebody gets a shower radio. Michael Scott gets a handmade oven mitt and is angry. <laughs> Michael Scott gets Ryan, the intern, a $400 video iPod. And Ryan opens up the present and it gets real awkward real fast, right? It's an office episode. I thought there was a $20 gift limit. Michael Scott gets in this video iPod. Well, here we are, and it's not a Christmas party at Dunder Mifflin, but it's a Passover one. Not at Dunder Mifflin, right? It's a Passover party in Jerusalem. And Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. There's PDA, and there's this incredible gift of love, and Peter is embarrassed. He's uncomfortable. Lord, do you wash my feet? No, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answers him, if you don't receive this gift, you have no share with me. He also says to him, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. We've got to say time out, right? What is Jesus talking about? What does he mean when he says we don't understand what he's doing? It seems kind of obvious. What does he mean we will understand afterwards? Afterwards? Like, after what? Well, of course the answer is after the cross. Right? In verse 7, if you'll look there with me, right, Jesus is tipping us off that this act of love and service is rich in symbolic significance. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing now is very similar to what I'll be doing tomorrow night. And what happens tomorrow night? Well, tomorrow night is Good Friday. Right, tomorrow night is the cross. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, if PDA makes you uncomfortable, just wait till you see the public display of affection tomorrow night. And if expensive gifts make you uncomfortable, Peter, what is going to prepare you for this gift? For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. This is the gift we must receive if we are to have a share with Jesus and live with him forever. John 13, friends, is not just about foot washing. Right? Ultimately, John 13 is about the cross. And by paying attention to this event, we will understand that event much, much better. How so? Well, for starters, Jesus was humiliated so that we could become clean. Jesus was humiliated so that we could become clean. The English word humiliate comes from the Latin word humiliare, which means to be brought low or to be made humble. Thursday night, Jesus was humiliated. 
Okay, Thursday night, Jesus took off his outer garments and addressed, adopted the dress of a slave. Friday night, Jesus was humiliated again. God incarnate was stripped bare. They took off his clothes and divided his garments. They nailed, they nailed him naked to a cross. Right? He was totally exposed. Jesus couldn't cover up his private parts because his arms and hands were held out wide and nailed there. Right? Jesus was humiliated. He wasn't just bearing our guilt. He was bearing our guilt and shame. Not only that, Jesus became filthy so we could become clean. Jesus became filthy so we could become clean. Thursday night, Jesus took off his outer garment, but he tied a towel around his waist, and he wiped his disciples' feet with it. Now, as I mentioned to you, it's muddy season in Vermont, so when I take Coulter outside, whether it's Snake Mountain or we go outside of the park, he gets muddy. And before we go inside, I've got to wipe his paws with a towel. Right? That towel is clean when we start out, but it's not when we're done. Right? After wiping my dog's paws, four of them, that towel is dirty. After washing the feet of 12 disciples, which is to say 24 dirty, grimy feet, you can imagine what that towel looked like, and you can imagine what Jesus looked like wearing it. Quite literally, Jesus was wearing their filth. Jesus became filthy so his disciples could become clean. Jesus did the exact same thing Friday night. Right? On the cross, Jesus took our sins upon him, and then he bore our punishment in our place. Our sins were given to Jesus, and his perfection was given to us. For our sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, our sins were transferred to Jesus. He became filthy so we could become clean. Lastly, Jesus cleansed his disciples with water one night, but he cleansed us with blood the other. The question that the Old Testament raises is how can a holy God live amongst a sinful people? Right? And the answer in the Old Testament that is given is substitutionary atonement. God allows a substitute to take the punishment our sins deserve in our place. And that substitute could be an animal like a sheep or a goat or an ox. But all of these substitutes, lowercase s, I can't do it backwards, lowercase s, right? All of these substitutes, lowercase s, were preparing us for the ultimate substitute. They were preparing us, preparing our eyes and our hearts and our imaginations for Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate substitute. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our perfect, spotless righteousness. Right, the reason that you and I can be forgiven is because an innocent one is willing to die in our place. And that innocent one is Jesus. 
He dies so we don't have to. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus takes away our filth. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. In being found in human flesh, Jesus humbled himself even more by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the cross, Jesus was humiliated. On the cross, Jesus became dirty so we could become clean. On the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself and he bore our punishment in our place. Jesus takes away our filth. It's point number one. But it brings us to point number two. Point number two is that this love of Jesus demands a response. In fact, it demands two responses. First, we must wash one another. And secondly, we must receive washing. Okay, first, we must wash one another. In verse 12, Jesus asks, Do you understand what I have done to you? I can imagine the disciples being like, Yeah. Jesus explains to them, Look, guys, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. right? That's who I am. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus' example? The answer is not as straightforward as you might think. Right? This text teaches us anything. If this text teaches us anything, is that Jesus takes away our filth. Jesus makes sinners clean. There are very real, very dirty, very stinky feet that need to be washed, and Jesus gets on his hands and knees and he washes them. And at the same time, there are very real sins that you and I have committed, and Jesus washes those away too. There is such a thing as physical dirtiness, and there is such a thing as spiritual dirtiness, and Jesus addresses both. And Jesus is saying to you and me today, I want you to do likewise. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying, go get up on a cross and die for the sins of the world. Of course, Jesus is not saying that. But Jesus is saying, I want you to pay attention to the physical and spiritual dirtiness that's around you. And I want you to wash them like I wash you. I want you to wash people outside and I want you to wash them in. Some of you are scratching your head and you're saying, well, how do we do that? Well, unlike Jesus who washes with water and, bl- washes with water and blood, we wash one another with water and the word. We wash others by getting on our hands and knees and serving like Jesus did. And we wash others by going out and telling people about it. Okay, first, right, we wash with water. You know, Jesus in this passage gets on his hands and knees. He really does wash stinky feet with real water. 
Right? He doesn't neglect the very real, very physical needs that are present right there in front of them. I mean, there's dirty feet here. We've got to eat. I'm going to clean them. Somebody's got to do it. I'll do it. Right? Jesus washes with water. And that means that we, his followers, must wash with water too. Right? We must be willing to humble ourselves and meet the physical, material needs of those around us. What does it look like to do this? The best example I can think of is the banquet at 150. Not the best, it's a very good example. Right? The banquet at 150, which is at New Moon, is a, a meal for Burlington's homeless. And instead of telling Burlington's homeless to go get a job so you can serve me, right, we say come to a plated dinner and we'll serve you. Another illustration, right? changing diapers. It could be kids' diapers. It could be grown-up diapers, too. Right? It's not nice work, but somebody's got to do it. And Jesus is saying, why not you? How about picking up garbage on your street? I mean, you can say, look, I didn't make this mess. Okay? You can say, I don't want to look stupid in front of my neighbors, like bending over their lawn. Okay, but somebody's got to do it. And Jesus is saying, why not you? There are tons of examples that we could come up with. Okay, we get that Jesus wants us to humble ourselves like he humbles himself and meet the needs, right, the, the physical, material needs of those around us. Right, we get the whole washing with water bit. But as I've explained to you, this passage is not just about washing feet. It's about Jesus washing away sins. It's about Jesus meeting physical needs, but it's about him meeting spiritual needs too. We're to wash with water, but we're to wash also with the word. Did you notice that right after talking about washing people's feet with water, in verses 14 and 15, that Jesus starts talking about messengers? Look at verses 16 and 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus talks about messengers again in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Okay, Jesus is connecting a ministry of word with receiving him, and therefore, right, by implication, being made whole, being made right, being made clean. Jesus wants us to wash feet, as it were, but he also wants us to wash people with words, to be messengers for Jesus. And we do that when we preach the gospel to other people. Right? We do that when we point others to Jesus. And we do that when we take people to the cross. So you're a sinner. Guess what? I am too. I need to go see Jesus. Do you want to come with me? I know there's a fountain over there that can wash away all of my sins. Friend, it can wash away yours too. I need to go see Jesus. Come with me. 
Come with me. Jesus takes away our filth. How are we to respond? We're to wash one another. We're to wash one another with water. We're to wash one another with words. We're to meet the physical needs of those around us. And we're to meet their spiritual needs as well. But that is not all. Okay? We must receive washing ourselves. We must receive washing ourselves. In verse 8, Peter says with embarrassed pride, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answers him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter responds, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Why does he say that? Because Peter, excitedly in love, like, well, in that case, Jesus, wash all of me. (laughs) Hands, feet, you know. Is Peter self-deprecating? I'm a worse sinner than all of these guys. I need more cleansing than they do. Is Peter asking for some sort of preferential treatment? I know you made Matthew and Andrew clean, but make me super duper clean. Wash my hands or head and my hands too. The text isn't very clear, right? We can only guess as to why Peter makes this special request. But what Jesus says in response can be puzzling too. Like, what does Jesus mean when he says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean? And you are clean, but not every one of you. Well, what is he talking about? Well, you've got to remember that Jesus has imbued right, this foot washing with a ton of symbolic meaning. Right? This foot washing is rich in symbolic significance. Jesus said, right, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Right? In other words, this washing is a symbolic act, Peter. Tonight I'm washing feet, but tomorrow night I'm going to be washing away your sins. In his request, then, Peter insinuates that he needs more cleansing than everybody else. Not just my feet, but also my hands and head. And Jesus says, that's not true, and that's not necessary. In effect, Jesus is saying, Peter, tomorrow night I'm going to die. My blood is going to wash away and cleanse and atone for all the sins of the world And Peter, if this one act makes Thomas and Andrew and Matthew clean, this one act makes you clean too. You don't need anything extra. You don't need to do something more. You don't need to have your head and your hands cleaned, right? This one thing suffices. My blood, Jesus says, is sufficient. It's good enough for you. It's good enough for everyone. Jesus' blood is good enough for you and for me. If you paid attention, you also see in verses 10 11 that Jesus says, but not everybody is clean. Jesus says that, in effect, Judas is not. Why? Why is Judas not clean? was exactly what I said. You must receive washing yourself. You must receive what Jesus is willing to do. 
Right? Jesus has done something to make us clean, but we have to open our hearts to actually receive that cleansing. Judas got his feet washed that night. When Jesus goes around the room and washes the feet of the disciples, he washes everybody's feet, including Judas's. Judas doesn't leave the room until verse 30, which is to say, Jesus washes his feet. Jesus washes the feet of the one who's going to betray him and hand him over to the Romans to be killed. He washes his feet. Similarly, when Jesus dies, he dies for the sins of the world. His blood has the power to wash away every sin, even Judas's. So why is Judas not clean? Why is Judas not forgiven? In the end, it's because Judas wants nothing to do with Jesus. In the end, Judas rejects Jesus, and he rejects, he rejects this gift of cleansing. Right? He rejects this grace. The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter receives Jesus' cleansing. Wash all of me, right? And Judas is essentially going, meh. Peter receives it. Judas rejects it. Not only must we wash one another's feet, but we must receive washing as well. John 13 introduces us to a God who takes away filth. And the depths of God's love, right, how low he is willing to go for you and for me makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus was humiliated so we could become clean. Jesus himself became dirty to make us clean. Jesus washes feet, and Jesus washes away sins. He wants us to follow his example. What this looks like is humbling ourselves and serving like he did. It also means preaching the gospel and the declaration that sins are forgiven. On the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself and he bore our punishment in our place. The death he died, he died for you. The blood he shed, he shed for you. His blood can wash away all sins, past, present, and future. But what are you going to do? Will you receive it? Or will you reject it? Do you want to share with Jesus? Let's pray.